Well, what a morning we're having. We're having a good time, though, aren't we? It's wonderful to worship Jesus together, just to spend time in his presence, to celebrate um, Emily getting baptized. I'm standing here as a very proud father, just very grateful for God's faithfulness in Emily's life, but also the faithfulness of this amazing community that we are part of. And we, nothing goes perfectly, as you've seen this morning, but the wonderful thing about this morning is that there is no excuse to forget any of the notices because you've heard them twice. So now what we're going to do is going to turn to your neighbor and explain exactly what they're on in each of the notices. No, we're not going to do that just yet. That's absolutely fine. So um, we're continuing our series on the Bible, and we've spoken about that sense we've had of God wanting us to just strengthen the foundations in his word and also the foundations in his spirit. So over the last few weeks, we've heard from Ben, we've heard from Phil about the Bible, what is the Bible, and the impact it has. And I'm taking on to to think uh, about the next stage in that journey and really asking the question, what does the Bible say about us? And the big story, the arc of Scripture, that wonderful story of God that we are a part of. We've been singing songs this morning that reflect part of that journey that we're invited into as God speaks his word through Scripture. And um, I have to say this morning, I'm going to take a big picture view from beginning to end. And uh, there are a whole load of thoughts and ideas. I'm not able to go into a lot of depth in many of them. It may raise more questions than it answers, but questions are okay. Because questions help us become curious and press into God and press into Scripture to try and discover more and more of who God is and what he has to say. And I'm aware when it comes to questions, and I would say at times confusion, one of the biggest conversations that is taking place in our culture at the moment is around identity. The idea of who or what makes us who we are. And we have no doubt heard many stories um, in the news and on our news feeds, um, in various different places, about some of the confusion or the uncertainty in this journey of identity. So just in the last couple of weeks, um, there was a story about a Norwegian, Jorund Victoria Alme. Now, Victoria, uh, uh, Jorund, actually, Jorund Victoria Alme, is a 53-year-old Norwegian, born biologically male, fully able-bodied, and yet now identifies as a disabled female, identifies as someone who is uh, paraplegic, has no use of their body from the waist down, and spends the majority of their time in a wheelchair. Now, uh, Jorund was interviewed on Norway's equivalent of Good Morning Britain at the start of November. The hosts on the program were very understanding, very sympathetic, very supportive, encouraging. She was there with her wife, Um, and uh, there was a great deal of sympathy, and there was sympathy from some viewers, some commentators, understanding, wanting to make space, and understand uh, this fresh identity that he or she had stepped into. As you can imagine, there were also other reactions and other responses. There were those of bewilderment, those of confusion, some of anger, because there is a broad conversation, and at times it is a a very unkind conversation, 
that is going on across very strong ideological lines across our culture about what gives us our identity. And what it boils down to for so many is the question of who or what determines who I am. So on the one hand, there is that idea that our self, who we are, is determined by physical characteristics such as our biological sex, our race, our age, perhaps our social norms, the social norms around us that shape and feed into that. That would be the more traditional view. On the other hand, there are many who would say that our identity is determined by the way that we think or feel, and that can be independent of the physical realities of our bodies, of our skin, of our age, of our abilities, um, and independent of traditional social expectations. And it is that second approach to identity that is increasingly gaining cultural momentum, and increasingly at the same time having a very strong reaction against it. However, it is widely recognized right across the spectrum that a clear sense of identity is crucial for us navigating the world in healthy ways. Um, This was a quote from the Center for Humans and Nature. How we see ourselves is the foundation of our values our choices, our relationships with each other, and our relationship with the rest of nature. The writer Crystal Raypole writes this, knowing who you are allows you to live with purpose and develop satisfying relationships, both of which can contribute to overall good emotional health. The interesting thing that I think we're all aware of is that over the last hundred years, where identity comes from has shifted significantly. From outside ourselves to within ourselves. So in the past, it will be widely culturally accepted that our identity comes from outside ourselves, from our parents, from our social situation that we're born into by the biology of our body, and when it comes to the big, big picture, by what God says about us, what the word of God tells us, the biblical narrative. Today, increasingly, with the secularization of culture, the broad abandonment in many areas of society of the idea of God, there is no longer an external source from which to gain our identity. So increasingly, the cultural narrative tells us to look inside ourselves to understand our identity. You know, you do you, speak your truth. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. The past values of duty and self-sacrifice have increasingly given way to the overriding necessity to be authentic. That is to look inside and be true to how we feel and how we feel emotion, how we experience life. Crystal Raypole, the same writer, encourages authenticity and describes it as this. Instead of living according to what other people say or suggest you should do, you follow insight gained from personal experience and live according to the guidance of your heart. So instead of coming from something bigger than us, our guidance and identity now comes from ourselves, from the guidance of our heart. As John Farrer wrote, writing for the BBC, to be human is to be at the center 
of our own universe. But what if we humans are not at the center of our own universe, but we're actually living in someone else's universe? What if the guidance of our hearts can't always be trusted and can lead us often to make poor and damaging decisions? What if being human, truly human, has something to do with someone or something far bigger and greater than ourselves? What if there is a source of knowledge outside ourselves which brings revelation and life-giving wisdom and speaks accurately about our humanity and makes sense of life and demonstrates how we can be part of something so much greater than ourselves? And I believe that there is a book that reveals the greatest story that was ever told and invites us to step in and become part of that story. And that book, of course, is the Bible. Now, next to my Bible on this table, I have a small green bottle. It's a very pretty, attractive bottle. In fact, I've taken it off a shelf at home where it has ornamental purposes. It has a cork in the top, and um, it's the ideal thing, really, for, I don't know, going on a picnic, if Sarah will let me take it out of the house, uh, fill it with some lemonade, or you could have some nice oil or balsamic vinegar in it to have it on your table. And uh, it's a wonderful, fantastic bottle. It's beautiful, and it serves a wonderful purpose. Oops. You have a wobbly table. The only thing is, when I pour a fluid, a liquid, into the bottle, it all comes out the bottom. Actually, as a bottle, it is completely useless. It's no good for me putting my lemonade in, taking it on a picnic. It's no good for me putting my balsamic vinegar in because it'll be all over the table. So actually, it has no purpose other than looking vaguely pretty, so I might as well just leave it and put it on the shelf. I'm highly disappointed in my bottle. The thing is, it was designed like that. It has a hole in the bottom. It was designed by the person who created with a hole in the bottle for a very clear purpose. And when you understand what the purpose of it is, it's actually quite brilliant. Does anyone have any idea what this bottle is? Absolutely. It's a wasp catcher. The reason it has a hole in the bottom is because when you pour the fluid in, normally something sticky like orange juice, and it, you can see there's a little bit of water just in the bottom there, but it sits around the rim, and there's a hole in the bottom. The wasps smell the lovely sticky juice, and rather than going and getting to the lovely sticky juice of your ice cream or of your dinner or, or your, you know, your drink or your sandwiches, they crawl in there, have a nice drink of their... Um, orange juice, and they get stuck. So now, if I take this on my picnic, it becomes a wonderful tool, not for carrying my lemonade, but for keeping the wasps from getting in my sandwiches and getting my story that he has created us to be a part of. And it's the Bible that tells us that story and invites us to step in and become a part of it. 
It's a story that begins with a garden in Genesis and it ends with a garden city in Revelation. It's a story that begins with God walking in relationship with men and women and ends with God restoring all things into relationship with himself. It's a story that begins with men and women commissioned to lovingly reign and care for creation and watch over its flourishing. And it's a story that ends with men and women restored to reign over all things with God for the flourishing of all. So if we dig in right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. The first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see the journey over the days. God creates light. He separates waters above and below the earth. He creates dry land and vegetation, putting the plants and the crops and the trees and the flowers. Then he sets the sun, the moon and stars in their tracks across the heaven. Then he creates the living creatures in the water and the skies. And then on the sixth day, he creates the living creatures on the land. And that same day, God says this, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. Man and woman created in God's image and placed in a beautiful garden where God walked with them in the cool of the day. It's here, right at the start, that we discover our true identity and our true purpose. We are made in the image of God. But what does that actually mean? Now the word for image in Hebrew is selim. And in the vast majority of the times we find that word in the Old Testament, apart from in the first nine chapters of Genesis, selim is used to refer to an idol, a wooden or stone image of a god. If we look at the literature of the ancient Near East and also on some inscriptions and statues that still exist from the cultures that surround Israel, a very similar, at times identical term is also used to refer to an idol. However, for those cultures, they believed that idol, that thing of wood or stone, wasn't just a piece of stone or wood, but actually it contained the spirit of the divine being that it was represented. It was a representation of that God on earth. And occasionally we see in the surrounding cultures of the Babylonians and the Egyptians that the word selem or image is also used to refer to a king. For example, Pharaoh who was seen as the embodiment of a God. However, when we look beyond the Bible, that, that word is never ever used in that context of the time to denote a normal person. It's only ever a king or on a rare occasion, a priest. It's never an everyday individual. It's never a woman. 
And so there is a set-apart status that was taking place in the culture around that gave a king in circumstances, divine right to do whatever he wanted with anyone else, which is why we see such cruelty uh, uh, meted out on anyone in these cultures who didn't have this kingly authority. And yet here, right at the start of the biblical creation story, we are told that all humanity, men and women, are made in the image of God. Regardless of status or rank or privilege or race, all have that God-given high status. All are created as representatives of God. All are created with his breath in them. All given authority to reign lovingly in partnership with God over the creation that he has made. Men and women with a clear identity, as sons and daughters made in the image of God and with a clear purpose to partner with God to bring life and flourishing and thriving. Every single person created with dignity one worth and sacred in the eyes of God. That was the beginning. But we all know, don't we, that it went wrong very soon. We see it in just chapter 3 of Genesis. Humanity chose to go it alone, actually to say, no, we want, our, we want knowledge for ourselves. We want to make our own choices, our own decisions. Sin enters the world with Adam and Eve, and we lost sight of that original God-given identity as his image bearers. Our purpose became distorted, no longer partnering with God for the flourishing of all creation, but focused on fulfilling our own desires, whatever the cost, sin, selfishness, greed, destruction, that fuel the headlines that we see on our news feeds and our newspapers and our TV screens today, all over the world. But we know, because the Bible tells us, that the story didn't end there. God didn't give up on his original plan. He'd never forgot our identity and purpose, even as we as humanity did. As we know, God sent his son, Jesus, to set us free from the destructive power of sin, to restore our original identity and purpose. And on the cross, he took on the destructive power of sin. Rising from the dead demonstrated that he had broken the power of sin and death forever. Jesus himself said this, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. At the start of his gospel, John writes this, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. When we repent and put our faith in Jesus, and that offer is open to everyone and to anyone, when we repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are reborn. Restored to our original identity as God's image bearers, partners with him on the great mission to restore all creation to its original wholeness and beauty. And we know the end of the story. 
We know that that plan and purpose will be fulfilled because of what we read at the end of the Bible in Revelation. I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I had a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Then Revelation chapter 22, start of that chapter. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for the lamps of the sun for the Lord will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. We see at the end of the story a garden city, the tree of life at its center where men and women walk with God himself and reign with him in the flourishing of all creation. It's the restoration of all things back to the way it was always meant to be, back to the garden at the beginning when it was very good. For us to walk with Jesus and partner with him in creation. So we are currently in autumn. And I don't know which is your favorite season of the year. I might do a little poll in a moment. But um, the arc of Scripture is like running from one summer to another. We start in summer, we move through autumn to winter, and then spring, and then come summer again. So I have interest. My favorite, you know, my favorite season used to be autumn, um, and it's actually shifted to spring. Uh, but I'd be interested to know, let's do a straw poll, hands up. Let's see, I, th- I think I guess uh, which way it's going to go. But winter, who, who has winter as their favorite season? Yes, we've got one or two. Enjoy winter. Um, how about uh, autumn? Who goes for autumn? The beautiful colors of autumn. Yeah, a few more there. Spring? Yeah, a lot of hands up going there. Summer? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Actually, spring seems to have it over summer. So I shift my allegiances from autumn. My birthday's in the autumn. That has something to do with it. I love the beauty of autumn, the trees, the leaves come off the tree, those days when you have those golden colors and yet a blue sky. And it just is so vivid and so real and so beautiful. I love autumn. But I've fallen in love with spring because there's something after those winter months when it has been dark and it's been cold and it's been bare trees, very little green, everything just, even the grass just looks a little bit less green, doesn't it, slightly off color. 
and then we start to get in spring those slightly longer days slightly warmer weather for the first time we step outside and it's still cold but you feel the warmth of the sun and we start to get the crocuses come up and buds on the trees and blossom the trees are still quite bare and yet there's blossom on the trees the days are a bit warmer Sometimes you come out and it's been a spring-like day and the next day you go out and suddenly it's cold. It's almost like you're back in winter. But you know, because the signs are all around you, that summer's coming. Summer where you can enjoy long days and bright light evenings and hopefully a little bit of warmth and sunshine and all that that brings. There's a promise in the air, which is why I love spring. And if we look at that ark of scripture from summer the beautiful creation in the garden through autumn and winter when it felt like all was lost to Jesus coming again and ushering us into a new era we are in that moment of spring and promise where things are being made new God is at work but ultimately it will lead to summer bright summer skies and warm beautiful days and we find ourselves in spring And we are here in spring to play a part in the story. The Christian message is not so much about inviting Jesus into our hearts. It's far more about God inviting us into his ongoing story of redemption. The big story whereby he makes all things new. And we can be a part of it right here and right now. We can be a part of it tomorrow morning as we go into our offices and our classrooms and our, our, our lecture theatres and our hospitals and our art studios. As we get on the bus, as we chat with friends or strangers or neighbours, as we take time to volunteer and care and serve for, for other people. When we look after our children and we, we spend time with our elderly parents, we bring the life of God into those situations if we allow ourselves to partner with him we can participate in his big story as we demonstrate his love and speak his good news and bless someone practically and help someone learn or grow or thrive and create tasty and beautiful or useful things with the gifts that God has given us Megan spoke just this morning about those moments as did Emily where we allow when we allow ourselves to be partners with God when we step into his story so he helps us in the renewal to bring in the life and the hope that one day will lead to new heaven, new earth. It's as though we're gardeners in the springtime, partnering with God's natural forces of nature to help that garden flourish and grow. The reality is in spring, I don't have to, part, part, I don't have to plant a garden for it to grow. It just grows. The, the flowers grow, the blossom comes on the trees, but I can partner with nature to to help it thrive to plant things out in helpful places to tidy away the weeds to help the 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 climbers climb on the trellis so in summary this is the big story the ark of scripture that god what god created in the beginning was very good then came the fall sin damaged and distorted all that was good especially us humans but Jesus died and rose again to forgive us and redeem us from that damage and for those who put their faith in Jesus we become part of God's plan to restore 
all things, which one day once again will become very good. It's a big story. It tells us of our origins. It acknowledges our failings. It leads us to salvation and it reveals our glorious destination. And that's the story. That's the worldview through which we need to view the world around us. And it's the worldview that needs to set our priorities and our perspective as we engage with our friends and our families and we are colleagues and we, we look and, and deal with the issues of our day. The biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, is the lens that we must use to navigate the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Too often we've used the lens of culture to navigate the Bible. We've got to turn it around and navigate our culture through the lens of Scripture. Asking what God says about the issues of the day, not what our culture says about God and the biblical narrative. Because culture changes like the wind. What was widely accepted in culture 10 years ago, even five years ago, is not the same as what's accepted today. And if we look to the voices of our culture to tell us who we are and how to make sense of the world, we will be constantly bewildered and thoroughly confused as it changes with the wind. If we look to our hearts for identity and purpose, the constantly changing desires of our hearts will no doubt leave us uncertain of who we are and why we're here. Jeremiah said this of the heart, the heart is deceptive above all things and beyond care, beyond cure. Who can understand it? I'm not saying here that we shouldn't be honest and real and authenticity is important, that we acknowledge who we are and what's going on inside, but it cannot be the compass by which we navigate. But God and his word do not change. They are constant and they are true. They reveal to us who we were always created to be. It's God who gives us our identity and purpose. And it's God's word that reveals it to us. The word and the spirit leads us also into that truth aligned with his word. As the psalmist tells us, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And scripture makes it clear that God invites us into his big story as sons and daughters created in his image, redeemed by Jesus, and called to play our part alongside him in the restoration of all things. And that's a story that is worth being a part of. Should we pray? Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we acknowledge that it is challenging at times. We've talked about over recent weeks, it's challenging at times to to fully grasp and understand. Some things um, jar us and some things are wonderful, but we recognize that this is your word. It's what you've given us to show the story, the big story that you've called us to be a part of. And we recognize that we have a choice as to whether we step in by faith into that story 
allowing you to turn our lives around, where we would lay down our lives, and as, as Flora mentioned today, just laying down our lives and, and, and grace as well, choosing to give our all to you, recognizing our sin, our failing, our failures, laying them at your feet, allowing you to restore your image in us, that we would walk and that we would partner. Lord, we ask that you would just come and refresh and renew our hearts and our minds. Well, we've increasingly believed narratives that aren't your narrative. Well, we've increasingly been shaped just by the voices and the ideas around us that don't actually align with your voice and your ideas. Would you come and refresh and renew us? Would you pour your spirit into us that we could read scripture through the lens of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and also that you would help us to see the challenges of our world around us that you love, that you would reveal to us what you want us to see through the lens of your truth and through the lens of scripture and that you would increasingly bring solutions that would help us come with love and grace and goodness to bring life and transformation to the world around us and the people that you love. In Jesus' name, amen.